Today's episode of the Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, offering innovative Gibco solutions to support your stem cell research workflow. everybody welcome to episode 56 glia i am dr christopher pisano he is dr yosef Gannett, and this is the stem cell podcast what's going on yos my man oh nothing much uh just got uh, off the heels off of our uh, new york stem cell foundation's uh annual gala have you you've been to this before I, right? i have been but i haven't been for a long time so um i've known it gets better and better but when i went it was it was it was great did you have a good time there yeah it was their uh 10th anniversary and uh i got to meet chuck close the famous artist uh yeah was, chuck's been a long time supporter i met him a bunch of times yeah he was wearing the most awesome outfit i've ever seen so uh i think the wall street journal uh did an article and also Bloomberg. So uh, if you want to check out some of the photos from the event, it's over there. And uh, congratulations on Susan Solomon for 10 years going strong as the CEO and building this place from uh, a concept to actual results and uh, therapy. So uh, yeah, that was nice. How's everything yeah, man. with you? Uh, con- NICEF's been doing a great job uh initially supporting stem cell research and now with their own doing their own research so congrats to them for for making it i can't believe it's been 10 years and they'll have their conference really soon right we'll be down there in new york yep see you next week over at rockefeller university not too late to register i don't believe so I no think you can still go to nicef.org and register um so we are um we are the stem cell podcast the official podcast of the international society for stem cell research the isscr you can go to isscr isscr.org and check out all their info and uh, register for their uh spinoff symposium um yos we we're, we're doing this periscope experiment so uh, you know why i thought it'd be good we're on, i'm doing periscope right now i'm looking into the camera i have yosef here you guys can't see him and and I'm going to do snippets sometimes when we record and stop it so you guys can see us record and just get a little tease of what we're going to talk about. The reason why I also want to have Periscope is because when Yosef and I go to meetings and we interview lots of people, what we can do is we can we can broadcast live some of our interviews so you guys can see them in real time. Cause it's a lot more fun, I feel, sometimes, right, Yosef, to see the interview. Yeah. Because yeah. like, the dynamic really helps. So go on to Periscope and, uh, and and check it out and subscribe, and you'll see what will pop on every once in a while. I won't obviously record the whole episode. I'll just do a few minutes here and there. So go check that out. Um, go to StemCellPodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. You'll get an email when a new episode comes out. Um, you can uh, go make sure you check out uh, StemCellPodcast.com and see the information of our sponsors, in particular Thermo Fisher for the 24 hours of stem cells. That banner's there. You can click there, register for 24 hours of stem cells. Uh, let's see, Yos, what else we got going on? We have a show called Glia today. You want to uh, give a quick, like, 15 seconds of what, what that means? 
Yeah, glia, uh, glue, Latin for glue. This is uh, everybody's familiar with neurons, but the uh, sort of uh, the I, I consider the neurons, the trees, and the the glia like the shrubbery. So you can't have a a forest without some of that shrubbery. So uh, that's that's uh, it's really important in the brain. And we got Dr. Steve Goldman. He, you know, he's actually one of the reasons why I went to Cornell for graduate school. Steve, Steve Goldman. I was all excited to get in his lab and do some work. And as soon as I got there, he's like, up. Oh, Moving to Rochester, and I was just like, "You're like, no, so yeah, yeah." Thank so, you. so Steve Goldman is our guest for episode 56. He's going to tell us about glia. He's going to tell us about his work in stem cells and glia and treating some demyelinating disorders like MS and things like this. Um, before, uh, lastly, before we move to the science roundup, um, what I, we we had we put out a request for uh, for everyone out there. We put out a request for you guys to come and fill out a survey to give us more information, and we got a real got a, a lot of responses. And one of the things was if you gave us your information, we were going to pick two people out, and we were going to give gift cards. So I have the names of the two people that were randomly selected. Uh, so uh, I have Robin Walters and Misha Heaton. So uh, congrats, congrats, guys! You 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 won. We're, we're going to send you a fifty dollars gift card. So. Uh, in a couple of days, you'll get an email from us, and we'll ask you what kind of gift card you want, and we'll be sure to send that to you guys. So thank you for the participation. Um, anything else I'm missing, Yos? No, keep sending us our uh, those rants. We got a great one today from Joshua Peterson. We got uh, one oh, yeah, on some oranges and some fruits. So, uh, keep them coming our way because uh, we're always in need of good rant topics uh, at the end of the we, show. So stay we tuned. are, and you know what? I'm about to sign off on this Periscope, but, but uh, I just filmed myself... Uh, while Yosef was giving me the rants. And so that's one of the my most fun times when Yosef <laughs> gives me rants. So you can go on there and watch me crack up and respond to them. So on Periscope, I'm signing out. Yosef, I'm turning it to you, man. Okay. Uh, so there was a uh, – I don't know if you saw this. Uh, so this week was oh, – I think it was actually last week into this week, uh, the Society for Neuroscience annual meeting yes. over in Chicago. And one of the most exciting uh, results that was presented there was this pilot study of uh, 12 patients that were given small doses of a cancer drug. It's a leukemia drug that appears to dramatically reduce the symptoms of people with Parkinson's, uh, with dementia, or Louis by dementia. So uh, out of the 12 patients given this small doses of a drug called nilotinib, which is produced by Novartis, this drug uh, found that uh, in the patients, uh, it, it basically helped the, uh, with their movement and mental function in all 11 of the 12 people that completed the six-month trial. And uh, the, the results in uh, Parkinsonian mice have also been exciting, as well as uh, uh, in vitro results uh, it appears that this 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 drug it's a bcr able uh pathway tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh that apparently at small do doses the uh, neurons in the brain love it and it convinces them to to start recycling some of these uh proteins like synuclein uh in in the cells and activates them to start cleaning up uh some of these deposits that are known to cause uh neurodegenerative diseases so they're actually going to wow. expand it to uh to uh, Alzheimer's disease in the future. So pretty pretty promising results. We'll see if it pans out. So look out wow. for nilotinib. 
Yeah, um, you know what? I was checking out the hashtag uh, SFN2015, so I was keeping track on that a little bit. I love that nowadays. You can keep track on meetings. Sorry, man. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so moving on, there was a science translational medicine study. Uh, what This was performed by Dr. Sean Morrison, a friend of the podcast here. Um, so this, this study showed that you know how everybody's into taking antioxidants and keeps you healthy and all this stuff. So he actually found that metastasizing melanoma cells uh, experience high levels of oxidative stress, which leads to death, uh, to the death of most metastasizing cells. So administration of antioxidants to the, uh, to mice that had these melanoma cells allowed for more metastasizing melanoma cells to survive. So, uh, this may be, uh, you know, bad if you have melanoma to be taking an antioxidant. Um, so you, you may be helping their, their chances essentially. Uh, so, uh, you can find that in science translational medicine. There was a international journal of epidemiology studies showing that standing at your desk may be no better than sitting at your desk. Uh, that's because being still is what has the negative impact on your health. So it doesn't matter if you're sitting or standing, as long as you're still in stasis, that's, that's the actual problem. So, uh, I think I want one of those huh. treadmill desks uh, in the future. Those are probably the best thing. I don't know how much those cost, but, uh, someone just told me one of my grad students was like, maybe you should get one of those desks that stand that you're standing and typing. And I'm just like, I'm not that guy. You know, <laughs> I'm not a stand guy all day. That's not me. Yeah. Yeah, my, my feet start to hurt. Uh, there was a scientific report study suggesting that Alzheimer's could possibly be a fungal disease. Listen to this. So they found cells and other material from several fungal species in the brain tissue and blood vessels of 11 deceased Alzheimer's patients, but none in the 10 Alzheimer's disease-free controls. So they're not sure if this is cause or effect, but you know, given that 9 out of 10 times we have no idea what's causing Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. Um, this could be this could be something, you know. It's uh, it's curious. So you can find that in scientific reports. Um, there's a neuroimage study looking at MRI scans in 36 healthy volunteers and 47 people with schizophrenia revealed that uh, various abnormalities in portions of the corpus callosum could be uh, explaining the differences in the scale of schizophrenia. So specific features in one part of the corpus callosum, you know, the bridge, the myelin yeah. bridge between both hemispheres of the brain. So they found that uh, specific differences in one part of uh, it correlated with the bizarre and disorganized behavior, while irregularities in a different part of the corpus callosum were associated with dis- disorganized thinking and speech and symptoms such as lack of emotion, while others were associated with delusions or hallucinations. So this suggests that schizophrenia is just, well, what which I think most people already knew is a heterogeneous group of disorders. Um, and you can find that uh, in neuroimage. Uh, there was a nature communication study which used hyperpolarized nanodiamonds, so some bling over here, to uh, light up cancer in MRI scale scans. So these uh, nanodiamonds are four to five nanometers in length and are non-toxic and non-reactive, but they have magnetic characteristics so uh, they can become beacons in an MRI scanner. So they attached 
them to these nano diamonds to molecules that target cancer and uh, to highlight the presence of early stage cancer cells. And uh, uh, while you know these nano diamonds are expensive, there are inexpensive synthetic versions available. So you may be seeing more of that in the future, and that's in Nature Communications. There was a cancer cool. cell study using uh, malaria protein to kill cancer. Uh, so pr- pregnant women are more vulnerable to the malaria parasite because of a protein it produces that binds to a sugar molecule in the placenta. So the same sugar, uh, it's a chondroitin sulfate. Uh, the gene's called VAR, V-A-R, 2CSA. Uh, this gene is also found on most cancer cells. So they combine this sugar uh, molecule with uh, with an anti-cancer toxin, and they found that the combination of the drug and the sugar specifically targeted it and killed more than 95% of cancer cell lines. Wow. And in mice implanted with three types of human, uh, human tumors. So uh, they found with non-Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma tumors shrank to a quarter of the size and with prostate cancer it completely eliminated the tumors in two of the six treated mice within a month and with metastatic breast cancer five of the six uh, implanted mice were cured of the disease so you can find that study in cancer cell and of course we'll link to all these studies. There was a NEDGEM study, the New England Journal of Medicine study showing that the Ebola virus, uh, fragments of it can persist in the semen of some of the survivors for at least nine months. So, yeah, they're not sure why, but in a quarter of the people that they looked at, uh, they remained positive for uh, for between seven and nine months, while um, the majority of the patients who did survive, it did go away, but about one quarter of it persisted for a very long time. So it's usually cleared out in half that time. So uh, be careful uh, when you're... Going around and uh, being promiscuous, I guess, in Liberia or something. Oh, Um, my God. uh, Let's see here. There was a neuroscience and uh, biobehavioral study showing that... uh, sorry, neuroscience and biobehavioral review study, uh, a meta-analysis examining correlations between brain volume and your IQ. So based on uh, data from 148 samples comprising over 8,000 participants, a report... Uh, they report a robust but weak association between brain size and IQ. And this is independent of sex and age. But while brain volume uh, was just a minor role, the structure and integrity appear to be the most important part of uh, IQ correlation. So considering, you know, a sperm whale has the biggest brain and uh, the shrew in terms of body mass actually has the biggest brain if you core you know, really yeah yeah the, like the pound sh- for pound type thing yeah pound for pound so uh and it's known that you know on average men have larger brains but there's no difference in global iq test performance between men and women so brain volume is just you know it's a minor part it's, it's you know even with like megaloencephaly uh that you know huge brain those people actually have lower iqs so uh brain volume doesn't really it's really the structure you know, the, the organization and structure of the brain that matters most, not brain volume. 
And uh, I don't know if you saw this. I'll end on a doctor. Actually, a couple. Uh, Dr. Robert Gallo, who co-discovered HIV. Uh, this guy, uh, as the cause of AIDS, uh, he is now beginning a phase one human trial this month, uh, October, for an HIV vaccine that has already had promising results in monkeys. And so they're testing it out in 60 volunteers. And uh, so hopefully we'll see some positive results from that. HIV vaccine you know, would be huge. Yeah, go, go ahead. I'll comment that after you're done. Go ahead. Yeah. And then finally, a nature uh, communication study. They use cryo-electron tomography to show that DNA forms these mini circles that are consistent, constantly wiggling and morphing into different shapes, ranging from things like rods to figure eights to like a, a racket shape, you know, like a tennis racket shape. Shape. Uh, so I'll link to it. It's a pretty cool video uh, that the computer models and the cryo electron tomography showing this DNA and the super coiled sta- states. That yeah, it has. super so, coiled DNA, yeah, baby. Yeah, you know you love it. <laughs> I love some super coiled DNA. You know, in relation to HIV, I was reading an article basically saying how it's amazing where we've come, gotten to with HIV. You know, it's going to be to a point where not only can you live with it for the rest of your life, but like it will be undetectable. And now to the point where you might even be able to prevent it altogether. So we've, yeah. we've come a long way. Yeah. And everyone always say, well, what about cancer? You know, but it's, uh, you know, a very, very different animal. Anyway, all right. So let's get into part the, the second half of this, more of the stem cell roundup. I saw this. Did you hear about this? This is the, the first in-womb or in-utero stem cell trial to begin. I saw this headline and I was uh, I had no idea. So basically, it's the first clinical trial to inject fetal stem cells into babies still in the womb. And uh it's kind of disturbed me a bit, so I started to read a little bit more and basically the I, I guess in the the the, the, the disease they're going to be doing this and using it in in conjunction with is called osteogenesis imperfecta and affects one in every 25,000 births. So it's uh they have these these they, they, you know, uh, it can be fatal, right? Because babies are born with multiple fractures, but the ones that survive face up to 15 bone pra- fractures per year. They have brittle teeth and impaired he- hearing, which makes sense because those bones in your ear, which make it really important to hear. And so this, they'll get these fetal stem cells from term- terminated pregnancies. And um, what they're going to do is they're going to inject these cells into in the womb. So we'll have the 15 babies will have the infusion in the womb. And again, after they're born, and uh, try to help kind of strengthen the bone. Wow. Uh, I don't know, man. Sounds scary. Uh, I don't know. What, yeah, this is going on in the U. This is at the Sweden's Karolinska Institute in the and in the UK by the Great Ormond Street Hospital. Start in January, so we'll keep on track, keep on top of it, and see what goes on there. But it was a little, uh, little, little, little scary headline when I saw it. Yeah. Uh, this is a weird transition. Uh, let's see. Scientists produce beef from cow stem cells. Lab-grown burgers could be on the menu by 2020. So we talked about this uh, in a previous episode. They're making you know meat from uh, stem cells. And this team, they developed a prototype cooked and consumed in London in 2013 that cost about $332,000 to make. Wow, that's right. definitely not so they, on the dollar menu right there. <laughs> no, you know, I was talking to Paul Tazar. What's up, Paul? I'm going to see you next week. We're going to go out to get a white truffle burger. And uh, we were talking about like, having a burger, and a truffle burger, and we looked, and they're expensive. You know, $50, 60 $75 burger, but it's majority made of truffles. But they don't compare anything to $330,000 burger. Anyway, so they were obviously working at getting the price all the way down. And the goal for developing the burger really is to meet the growing demand for meat 
and with traditional farming methods are really energy intensive, causing incredibly high greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, which I didn't know how much gas emissions come from like cattle farming. Yeah, especially like, the methane. The methane's where it's at, and uh, yeah, there's all sorts of production for the feed, the grain that they use to. You know, it's so heavy on the carbon. Also, besides the methane, and I also saw a report of the a scientist who's who's. Uh, putting heme hema is is what gives meat its meaty flavor that so, flavor yeah, yeah so uh there's efforts also to add heme into the burger interesting and, yeah that yeah. gives it that, that gamey flavor well, they say that they, they they made an announcement this this is this guy post um austrian food researcher honey rutzler uh and let me see here uh yeah peter verstreit head of the firm Moza Meat that collaborates with uh, this guy, Professor Mark Post. They said that they're, they got it down to a little bit more than $11 per burger wow. or $36 per pound of cow-free beef. Uh, so uh, I don't know. Would you have a Would you have a cloned? Would you have a stem cell-created beef burger? Uh, maybe after a few years of people eating it without dying. Yeah, sure. All right, good. So I'll let you try it first. All right, let's see here. We got, uh, okay, Scottish researchers are 3D printing extremely delicate cells. So we all have heard of this 3D printing world. They, um, it's gained a strong foothold in numerous areas of the medical industry today. They're making these, like, you know, um, kind of 3D prosthetics is really where it's been at. And so this team at Heriot Watt, led by Dr. Will Shu, the University School of Engineering and Physical Sciences, they have, they have the... I guess the distinction of being the first group to 3D print with stem cells using this technique. And it's a very delicate endeavor. Obviously, the challenge is to 3D print these sensitive stem cells, these live cultures, without damaging or killing them. And so the mission is to use this research to begin making patient-specific drug treatments, um, you know, which is obviously for greater efficiency and effectiveness. Um, and it says they have evolved their process now as well as the hardware so it can handle the fragile nature of 3D printing IPS cells. So they're going to start to 3D print these cells. That would be, that'd be really cool. I still really don't know what it means to actually 3D print. Have you ever seen anything 3D printed? Uh, I have. Not with cells, though. I you know, Not with cells, yeah. me either. Yeah. So I, I don't get that, but we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. This was in uh, – these are some more primary articles now. This is a resource paper in Cell Stem Cell. Uh, Sarah – Teichman is the senior or the last author. Single cell RNA seq, a pluripotent states unlock modular transcriptional variation. And I, I brought this up because um, looking at single cells is a big is going is getting is, is a very big point of emphasis. So uh, stem cells grow in a cult in a in a in a they're not just one cell. There's hundreds or thousands of cells, and we assume. The assumption is that they would all be the same, right? But that's not the case. I mean, every cell in the dish is going to be a little bit different, even if they're kind of being maintained and told to be the same thing. So they use mouse embryonic stem cells, and they grew them in three different conditions. And they show, you know, they did that 2i, EOS, and serum. And they showed that uh, grown in three different conditions, they show distinct transcriptomes, which makes sense. Uh, and they say that this, the... Um, that the, uh, the, the the transcriptomes of these cells in their con- different conditions are different, with two I being the most similar to the blastocyst or the ground state, um, and then they say that uh, global intracellular variation is at similar levels in all three conditions. So, regardless of the condition, when you go into that condition, you look at different cells. The variation that occurs in that plate is no different than the variation that occurs in the different condition. So the conditions are different, but the variation within each is kind of similar, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see. Um, 
that's kind of an obvious thing, right? But yeah, so two eyes, you know. the two inhibitors, uh, we should yeah. say. Like uh, I forget which pathways it is. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's what junk. Uh, oh yeah, like Irk or one of these guys. Yeah. I don't know because you know what? I never really grew a lot of mouse ESL, so I never got into that. Yeah, yeah. not into that game. I'm a human guy. Um, okay, neural stem cells rescue cognitive and motor dysfunction in a transgenic model of dementia with Lewy bodies through a BDN. Did you talk about this through a BDNF dependent mechanism? Is a different way. Uh, no, I didn't. No, you were talking about the neuroscience. Uh, the uh, the uh, um, come on cancer drug that was doing this this isn't a model of dementia so for everyone out there dementia is you know losing your memory it happens in alzheimer's disease and so here they had an alpha synuclein mouse which is a mouse that overexpresses this protein that aggregates and kills cells in the brain that's like a model of alzheimer's or dementia um so they have these cognitive deficits and then they transplant these neural stem cells striatally so they put them into this region of the brain called the striatum um, and when they do that, it dramatically improves cognition and motor function. And they found that BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, it's a protein, is necessary for this uh, and this mediated behavioral improvement. And so uh, the conclusion is that these neural stem cells through BDNF promote the recovery of this uh, dementia by regulating the dopaminergic and glutamatergic systems, two neurotransmitter systems in the brain that are very important for cognition and overall brain health. Which, which um, journal is that? This is in Stem Cell Reports out of the lab of Matthew Blurt and Jones. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, vascular platform to define hematopoietic stem cell factors and enhance regenerative hematopoiesis. It's a long title that to the lay people, what the hell are you saying? Out of the lab of Jason Butler. Basically what they did was they looked at the niche of hematopoietic stem cells, which are blood stem cells, blood, uh, and they looked in the bone marrow and they were looking at uh, endothelium, the endothelial cells, and how they contribute to uh, these stem cells and their ability to do what they're supposed to do. And they find some data there uh, that demonstrates specific pathways and specific factors that are involved in helping the uh, kind of um, uh, g- uh, kind of get get these uh, stem cells mobilized and things like this, and uh, kind of enrich transplantation. So that's more of a lay summary that's in stem cell reports. Uh, and then I'll end with um, I end with this because this is kind of you'll like this name. You'll, this is in stem cell reports. It's called crestospheres. Hmm. So um, the long term maintenance of multipotent pre migratory neural crest stem cells, and this is out of the lab of Marianne uh, Bronner. And um, we knew we know neurospheres, and so ner- these these are cells that you put them in culture, and they will grow to form these kind of three dimensional spheres. And this this report here talks about how you can make crestospheres out of neural crest stem cells. So the neural crest is um, kind of uh, it's from the peripheral nervous system. It gives rise to the peripheral nervous system. So when I say central nervous system, you know you have the brain, uh, spinal cord, and you have peripheral nervous system. Those neurons that come out into your arms, those pain receptors, things like this. So that they describe this uh, this kind of way to lo- maintain these neural crest stem cells that will give rise to the neural this peripheral nervous system as these crestospheres or as these little kind of uh, spheres that when they transplant and things like this will give rise to the lineages of the of the PNS. So cool. um, I just kind of like the name crestospheres. Yeah. That's in uh, stem cell reports. You can check that out. So um, I think for the sake of time here, let's end. Uh, let's move 
to the interview portion of the Stem Cell Podcast, which is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Uh, we're going to talk. We're talking about neurons. We're going to talk to in a minute. Talk to Steve Goldman about glia and things. And so uh, it's kind of fitting. Stem Cell Technologies uh, asked us if we would talk about their new medium. We talked about it last time. This was a new culture medium that's designed to kind of help neurons in a dish become more active, which is what you want. This was developed out of the lab of uh, uh, Cedric Barty and Fred Gage. It's published in PNAS. Hmm. And uh, so, so that guy who wrote in was like, remember that? He was like, yeah. yeah, your favorite journal. I love that. So it's called Brain Fizz, and it's a new neuronal culture medium. You can go to stemcell.com slash active neurons to find out some more information and get uh, uh, you know put in your names to get request- notified when it comes out. Or you can go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the Brain Fizz banner and it will bring you right to their site to get some more info. So let's uh, let's bring on Steve. Okay, so today uh, I, I, our guest is uh, Dr. Steve Goldman. I'm going to give uh, Dr. Goldman a, a proper introduction to someone's work that I, I've been following for some time, and Sir Yosef has as well. It's in our field. So um, Dr. Goldman is the uh, UR Med Center, or the University of Rochester Medical Center, Distinguished Professor of Neuroscience and Neurology. Um, he, he obtained his Ph.D. with Fernando Notobaum at the Rockefeller University, who um, is really someone that I've really been following ever since I got into science and really was instrumental looking at adult uh, neurogenesis and songbirds down at Rockefeller. Um, So he did his PhD down there and got his MD from Cornell. And Dr. Goldman interned in medicine and did his residency in neurology at New York Hospital, Cornell, and uh, the Jerome Posner at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center before actually joining the Cornell faculty. And then he moved to Rochester in 2003 uh, from Cornell University, where he currently is and where his lab is. And his interests, which we'll get into in a second, um, are obviously involved in neuroscience and, and stem cells and uh, really in cell genesis or the creation of new, new neural and glial cells and neural regeneration in the adult brain um, and f- focus on using neural stem and progenitor cells in treating uh, demyelinating and neurodegenerative disease uh, and so uh, he's published over you know, hundreds of papers uh, and, 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 and recipients of numerous awards. I will not get into, needless to say, uh, he's, he's well-known in the field, and we're happy to have him on. Steve, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks much. So, so but I, 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 we mentioned this in the beginning. We, we, we have uh, Steve on here with some, some expertise, and so we we'll want to introduce, help us introduce a new topic to our, our, our audience. And Yosef and I are neuroscientists, and I feel that uh, I remember being taught about glial cells by a, by, a, by a biologist in grad school, and he was saying, glia gets no love. It's all the neurons get all the love. Uh, but the glia really are what make everything happen. So in the context, we're going to be talking about, you know, demyelinating disorders and MS and things that you're working on. Why don't we start, Steve, with a little bit of introduction of glia and, and why it's important and well, what, it, what they are. Okay. Yeah, so, so glia, we always think of as the support cells in the nervous system. They include a couple different cell types. Uh, oligodendrocytes, those are the cells that uh, make myelin. And myelin, of course, is the substance that uh, surrounds axons, neuronal axons, and insulates them and allows uh, conduction along nerve fibers. And when oligodendrocytes are lost, that causes all sorts of of, uh, disorders of the nervous system. Uh, Multiple sclerosis is is one of the most uh, most common, one of the ones we always think about. Uh, But but in fact, there are all sorts of diseases of, of myelin, of oligodendrocyte loss, um, all of us, as we uh, age, uh, lose myelin, 
and that results in uh, age-related, uh, what we call white matter loss. The white matter of the brain, of course, is composed of oligodendrocytes and oligodendrocytic myelin. And so everything from white matter stroke to uh, age-related white matter loss to uh, subcortical dementia, uh, the, the dementia that accompanies white matter loss, uh, all, all of these are really disorders of the oligodendrocyte. And so we think of these as neurologic diseases, but they're really glial diseases. And as we're finding out, uh, there are all sorts of, uh, uh, of diseases that turn out to be a result of glial dysfunction. So oligodendrocytes are one major type of glial cell. The other major type is the astrocyte, which is probably the most common cell type in the nervous system. Uh, that varies by species and by area, but, but it's a, uh, it was probably more astrocytes than uh, the neurons in the, in the central nervous system and uh, specifically in primates and people. Astrocytes are the, uh, again, the support cells, but uh, they, they do a lot. They uh, control the ionic uh, homeostasis, in other words, the ion levels within the, the brain, both uh, intracellularly and extracellularly, and that, that determines whether neurons fire or, or don't. It determines the, the firing thresholds, the action potential thresholds of neurons. And uh, they also uh, take up neurotransmitters from the synapse, from the synaptic clefts. And that uh, also determines the firing thresholds of, of neurons and how active neurons are. Uh, they, they clear metabolic waste products. They send fluid throughout the brain. They, uh, they control the, the flow of uh, cerebrospinal fluid from the ventricles uh, out through the brain, brain tissue. They control the blood-brain barrier, uh, what, what comes in from the blood into the brain. So, uh, so astrocytes are really uh, uh, you know, jacks of many trades. And uh, between those two cell types, the astrocyte and the oligodendrocyte, those are most of the, of the uh, uh, glia of the brain, the macroglia. And there are also uh, two others worth mentioning, microglial cells, which, which are derived otherwise. Um, and they, they come from, from both the hematopoietic system and, and very early on from, from yolk sac in, in, in early development. But they control the immune functions of the brain, uh, what's called the brain's innate immune system. And so, of course, that, that's a major uh, function um, that, that uh, is required within any organ of having some immune defense. Well, within the brain, it's the microglial cell that really accomplishes that. And then the, uh, the glial progenitor cell, which we used to think of as uh, just a progenitor cell to astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, that's really turning out to be a cell type in its own right. And these are cells that appear early in development and uh, scatter throughout the brain and continue to give rise to astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, both in early development but also in adulthood. It turns out, though, that whereas we used to think of them as really uh, just, just being persistent progenitors, it turns out they have all sorts of functions of their own. They're only now beginning to understand. So there's really four major glial cell types of the brain, the astrocyte, the oligodendrocyte, the glial progenitor cell, and the, uh, the, the microglial cell. Okay, and so we're uh, not a neuroscience podcast, even though we tend to focus on it maybe a little too much, but uh, we are the stem cell podcast. So why don't you talk about how uh, you use stem cells in your lab to either uh, model disease or to treat disease? Sure. So, so way back, um, I started uh, off by studying a bird song at Rockefeller a long time back and uh, with uh, Fernando Noderbaum uh, uh, 
discovered that uh, there was persistent neurogenesis, neuronal production in the adult bird brain. And so that, uh, from my standpoint, um, uh, led to my own interest in how one could introduce new neurons into the adult brain. And it was in the context of uh, looking first in birds and then in mice and rats and ultimately in humans at the uh, the types of stem cells that were present in the adult brain. We found that in in humans in particular, the the neural stem cell population in the ventricular wall, which is where these cells typically uh, uh, form in early development and then persist into adulthood, well, in, in humans, the, there aren't that many neural stem cells. They're still there, uh, but the numbers are relatively low compared to in lower species. What happens in humans is that most of the, of the uh, progenitor cells of the brain actually translocate out into the brain parenchyma. And so that um, uh, in the normal adult mouse brain, for example, there are plenty of neural stem cells lining the ventricular wall, and they continue to generate cell types, um, neurons as well as glia in the adult. In humans, it's a bit different. Uh, We still have neural stem cells in the ventricular wall, but there's a large population of of progenitor cells that derive from those stem cells, and I'll explain the distinction between the two, that go out into the brain parenchyma, white matter and gray matter both, and those cells uh, essentially represent our reservoir of, of uh, progenitor cells in, in adulthood. So the difference between a stem cell and a progenitor, uh, for, at least from my standpoint, you'll, you'll find different definitions out there. But, but a stem cell is by definition self-renewing. And a somatic stem cell, one within a given tissue, can generate all the major cell types of that organ. Uh, so the, the uh, progenitor cells, um, once they leave a germinal zone, that is comprised of stem cells, at least in some tissues, including the brain, lose that self-renewal competence. And in the brain, the uh, uh, cells, after they leave the ventricular wall, uh, actually retain what we call multi-lineage competence. They can still make glia, astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, and uh, at least under appropriate conditions, can still make neurons. But what they cannot do is keep dividing. So so they, they lose self-renewal competence. And so in, in the human, the, uh, the progenitor population that's derived from the stem cell largely persists within brain parenchyma. And so from my own standpoint, uh, you know, over, over the years, as we initially were looking at the at neural stem cells as a source of neurons, I became really enamored of the glial progenitors that derive from those neural stem cells because I realized that in, in humans, at least, that's by far the major uh, progenitor cell population. The, the neural stem cell is, uh, again, relatively uh, relatively scarce. Uh, the uh, neurogenesis itself, the production of neurons from those neural stem cells in humans is a relatively rare event, we think now, it, it persists within the hippocampus. Even there, the numbers aren't really clear, but it persists within the, the adult hippocampus. Uh, early in um, uh, postnatal development in the uh, cerebellum and the cerebellar granular layers, perhaps in the olfactory bulb, uh, uh, also in a manner that probably degrades with age. And so humans, we, we, as far as is known now, we don't have that many instances of ongoing neuronal production. And so uh, the, the stem cells are not all that active from the standpoint of neuronal production in humans. Again, there are isolated areas where it still occurs and the kinetics still aren't really well understood. But what's really clear is that there are tremendous numbers of glial progenitors that are produced from those neural stem cells that persist within the
in the adult and continue to be produced and turn, and turn over within the adult, meaning more of them are, are always, some of them are always dividing and more of them are always, you know, over the years I became more and more interested in, in that population just because it looked to be much more um, important in human biology. And you know, from my own biases, uh, I'm still a clinician, and so so uh, human biology, as opposed to uh, that of lower species, has has some specific interest. And so I started focusing more and more on gliobiology as time went on, and uh, that morphed into looking at the role of glia in disease, and that in turn morphed into uh, trying to model the roles of human glia in different uh, human diseases. Yeah, and you know, I I sort of feel bad for you in the sense that uh, neurons uh, come first in development. So trying to make glia from stem cells, embryonic ones at least, takes a long time traditionally. And some of these protocols, they're like day sixty, day ninety, and if uh, you know you get a little bit of contamination, you lose like you know a quarter of the year's work. And so. Um, Talk about like uh, trying to produce. I, I know your lab has used uh, several great protocols using like PDGF receptor uh, to to sort and purify, uh, say oligoprogenitors. Um, what's the state of? Uh, I guess have you guys been able to push the production of the cells to a faster timeline, or are we still stuck with day sixty or day ninety protocols? We're still stuck with day 60 and day 90 protocols, basically. Uh, but that's down from day 120 and down to day 150. So, okay. so uh, This is true. This is very yeah. true. Yeah, so, you know, slowly but surely, things do get better. Um, so, so, you know, you point out very uh, uh, incisively that um, uh, I'm stuck with working with the cell type that is that takes the longest of any cell type in the body to, to be uh, uh, to be differentiated in early development. And that, that, that's the, uh, not so much the glial progenitor itself, but, but the oligodendrocyte. Oligodendrocytes uh, are the last cell type made in the human brain. The progenitors themselves uh, in uh, gestation, as far as we can tell in humans, only really start to appear in abundance at uh, about 16 weeks of human gestation and, and really not in, in terms of significant immigration out into the uh, cortex until 18 weeks. And so it's really relatively late in the second trimester before glial progenitors start to be uh, made and, and produced. Uh, from about 18 weeks on, most of the cells made in the adult, in the, adult, excuse me, in the uh, uh, developing brain uh, are gliopogenitors, and so most of the third trimester of uh, human development is concerned with gliopogenitor expansion and then, then the maturation of those cells into astrocytes and oligodendrocytes. And so the oligodendrocyte in particular uh, comes on uh, really late in the game, uh, and the, uh, the approaches that we use to, to recapitulate the early development uh, in the culture dish by making... Um, uh, making oligodendrocytes and astrocytes uh, from embryonic stem cells uh, actually mimic that long differentiation process. So it takes a long time to go from a embryonic stem cell to an early neural stem cell and from an early neural stem cell to a glial progenitor and from a glial progenitor to, to an oligodendrocyte or astrocyte. So when we first started uh, developing those techniques, that was um, about five years back, and we were basing the the uh, uh, our pro our own protocols for making glial progenitor cells uh, on the 
uh, genomic information, the gene expression data that we obtain from gliopogenitors uh, sorted from fetal human tissue. Mm. And then once we uh, had identified what the essentially what uh, receptors were being expressed by human neural stem cells and, and uh, glial progenitors, uh, and, and then their derivatives were able to uh, predict on that basis what kinds of factors to be adding to the culture dish over time to get the cell type that we wanted. And uh, originally, uh, we, we didn't start to see glial progenitors until about oh, 120 days or so, and it would take about 150 days before we started to see uh, really large numbers of oligodendrocytes. So we've worked on it, uh, both my group and many others, from the standpoint of speeding the process up. And, and we've been able to speed the process up from the standpoint of getting from the embryonic stem cell to the, uh, to the neural stem cell. And that, that uh, is based both on work we've done, but also from, uh, from a number of uh, other labs and, and other protocols. Um, and uh, as you uh, fellows both know, uh, Lauren Studer's uh, developed a number of protocols for, for speeding up that process to get to the neural stem cell, and we've adopted some of those. Uh, but once we're at the neural stem cell, getting from there to the glial progenitor cell it still takes a while. Mm. And, and that, that, that in and of itself, that step takes, takes us about 45 days. And so then uh, from there on to uh, mature astrocytes is another couple of weeks. But by then, uh, by that point, on to oligodendrocytes is uh, easily another month. And so we're, we're still looking at 90-day uh, protocols or so uh, in terms of really mature as oligodendrocytic production uh, from, uh, from the neural stem cell. Now, that, 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 ref that, uh, there's a caveat there. Uh, that protocol is one that uh, we, uh, my, my group, really likes because it takes us through a stage of glial progenitor cells. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other methods that have been uh, reported now that uh, allow one to get to oligodendrocytes more quickly, but where the cells transit very quickly through the period of glial progenitor cell um, fate. And so they, they become glial progenitor cells and then very quickly become other oligodendrocytes or astrocytes. What we like is to get to the point of glial progenitor cells and then maintain them at that point and then expand them at that point because that, that's the transplantable cell population. Mm. Because if, if you march the cells through too quickly to become mature oligodendrocytes, mature astrocytes, you can transplant those cells, but they won't go anywhere. They, they won't disperse widely. They won't uh, engraft in, in into a host brain. And so both from the standpoint of, uh, of clinical treatment and from disease modeling, we really concentrate on, on producing the glial progenitor cell as opposed to its mature derivatives and then transplanting those progenitors mm. because the progenitor cell type is still capable of widespread migration in an adult brain as well as a developing brain and of, uh, uh, of continued expansion, of making more of themselves and to really fill out those brains. And that's what allows us both, both to uh, to use that cell type as a as a treatment vehicle, uh, as well as uh, means of modeling disease by using disease specific or patient specific leoprogenitors as as the transplant vehicle. So yeah, so let's let's talk about that with the uh, with the audience a bit. The 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 end the end goal. So we're talking about creating these glial progenitors from Yosef brought up from a pluripotent stem cell, which is, you know, uh, we talk about a lot in the show. It's, a, you know, the, the, the basic, the very early stem cell that can turn into everything. And so that's why it's a longer guided process to get down, as you said. But the end point would be to create this population of glial progenitor cells that we can use to uh, transplant into patients that have some sort of disease it can help with. I mean, that, that's really the logic. And so you have 
provided some really nice evidence that you can actually do this. And I'm, I'm still, rem- I still remember Joseph seeing the pictures of those brains. You know, those those animals that had the uh, the, the the fetal uh, progenitors put in. You know, the glial progenitors, and they just take over in this beautiful picture. So, tell tell the audience a little bit about your work that that has shown and a proof of principle that if you do have a population of these glial progenitors, human glial progenitor cells, and you put them into a model of disease, you can actually get benefit. Yeah, so we've worked on the glial progenitors from a couple of standpoints. One is to use them as uh, as transplantable cells for, for, for treating diseases of white matter, for treating uh, demyelinating diseases in particular. And the other, of course, is to, to use them as uh, in a uh, as generated from given patients or given diseases uh, to um, uh, to model disease in, in animals. And so uh, your question is in regards to the uh, to the first point. Um, how do we use the cells uh, as uh, uh, as essentially treatment vehicles? And so uh, we've looked at first in a variety of models of um, in, in uh, mice and and, uh, and rats of demyelination. And uh, the, the idea there is to um, think in terms of patients with demyelinating disease, and patients who have suffered um, some loss of myelin, either diffusely or in some parts of brain, or even in, uh, in patients with, with some of the hereditary disorders that uh, result in myelin loss or, or deficit in myelin formation. So it's a really broad category of disease. Everything from the, the what we call the pediatric leukodystrophies, the, these are the childhood diseases of myelin, uh, th- lysosomal storage diseases that result in myelin loss, things like Tay-Sachs disease and Sandhoff's disease, Canavan's disease, Batten's disease. They, these are all in this larger category of childhood leukodystrophies. Um, even uh, cerebral palsy. You know, you used to think of that as a neuronal disease. It's largely a disease of oligodendrocyte uh, loss or failure to form in, in early development. So you've got this large category of childhood diseases, and then the large category of adult disorders that I mentioned before, multiple sclerosis and uh, uh, age-related white matter loss, uh, white matter stroke, uh, after radiation uh, to, to the brain for, for cancer treatment, radiation-induced yeah. white matter loss. So, so you've got, this, is a, this is a huge chunk of neurology when you get down to it. And so we want to do uh, to use these cells essentially as a common platform for, for, for treating all these different disorders potentially, but simply by transplanting them in. And, you know, there's a lot of detail there. For some diseases, that's appropriate. For some, not. For some, you want to be putting in mature oligos. And for others, you want to be putting in immature glial progenitors. It all depends how much dispersal you want of the, the cells for the tissue, uh, or as the case may be, how little dispersal and how much uh, focal engraftment. Um, and also, it depends upon how quickly one wants these, the cells to produce myelin, and which, which uh, is, is a function of exactly what the disease is. So, so you've got this broad category and a number of different ways to, to treat, but they all come down to using the cell type. So to model that, we, we first took uh, glial progenitors and put them into uh, adult rats that uh, had uh, focal lesions of the white matter and found that the cells could remyelinate those lesions well. And so then we went through a couple of models uh, of adult demyelination and realized that the cells really worked. And so we became more and more aggressive in terms of the um, kind of how challenging the model was, and ended up uh, focusing on a, a mouse called the shiver. Mouse and shiver, uh, you don't get any more unmyelinated than a shiver. They, uh, <laughs> they, they never make any myelin whatsoever. Um, it, it's, a, uh, it's a very unfortunate mouse. They, they have an early, uh, uh, or, or, or it's a mutation in, in the, 
first exon of the myelin basic protein gene. So this is a, a gene that's required to, to make myelin basic protein, which is one of the major constituents of myelin. It's why myelin takes on its onion skin appearance uh, of being able to wrap around an axon. So without myelin basic protein, that uh, wrapping doesn't occur, and what's called myelin compaction doesn't occur, and you end up with, um, uh, with axons that uh, are essentially unmyelinated uninsulated, and so they can't conduct an impulse. And so an impulse that starts in a neuron, a neuronal cell body, uh, will only propagate along a fairly short length and then just die out. And so as the animal gets bigger, as, as it, you know, it's born normally, but then as it grows and the nervous system enlarges and ex- axons become longer, well, those axons, more and more as, they becoming, as they're becoming longer, uh, fail to conduct an impulse appropriately. And so there's more and more what we call conduction failure as the animals get larger because the axons can't, can't propagate those impulses because they're not myelinated. And so in, uh, in shiver, uh, by the time they're six or eight weeks old, they're, they're, uh, they look like they're shivering, uh, hence the name. Uh, actually, they have a severe tremor. And then they um, become very imbalanced. Uh, basically, the, they can't conduct impulses appropriately from brain to spinal cord. And as a result, uh, coordination falls off, and they become weak. And finally, they develop seizure disorders from central demyelination or hypermyelination. And then they die. And they, uh, they die like clockwork, uh, really, uh, 20 weeks, at least on the, uh, on the, on the strain background that we use. So... Uh, People have used shiver for a long time. I mean, we're, we're by no means the first to uh, to to, um, to work up shiver and to look at uh, evidence of uh, myelination and shiver using transplants. Um, a number of groups had done it before us. I think most notably Evan Snyder's years back uh, had, had used neural stem cells and found evidence of myelination. Uh, so we I'm, looked at just, that as a, just, as a challenging I'm, model. I'm sorry, what? just a technical detail. If they only sure. last 20 weeks, are, is it only the heads uh, that you use for uh, propagating the line? I, I don't, I mean, it must be hard to, to breed Plus, a you line. You have to explain what a head is. I'm sure oh, no one sorry. understands Heterozy- <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Uh, heterozygous for the mutation uh, that I guess you're half as bad as a full knockout uh, where it's in terms of penetrance of this loss of myelin. Um, so... It, it, it must be a challenge to, to keep this colony alive. Uh, yes, yeah, so we, we've had the colony alive for years now, and, it's, and it, we breed them as double homozygotes. And so that um, it, they're homozygous shiver, and we've crossed them to a RAG2 nulls, so they're immunodeficient for, mm. to be able to do the xenografts. Um, so the, the animals, uh, you know, we, we basically they, they start breeding, uh, uh, you know, six to eight weeks before that. So we get one, usually a litter out of them uh, before they become too impaired. Mm. And okay. so uh, uh, it means, of course, as you might imagine, it's a large colony in order to be able to maintain the colony because yeah. the, the females basically will just get one litter out of uh, before they become too impaired to breed. But mm. um, No myelin, but they can still get it done. They can, yes, still, yes, they can still breed. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Okay, sorry, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you there, but so you, you did the uh, P1 injections? Uh, right. Of- yeah, so, so then... then uh, you know, with all those studies that had been done before in terms of uh, getting the cells to make myelin, uh, nothing had ever been done that gave the animals an extra day of life. And so uh, we, we found that when we put in, uh, initially we did this with fetal tissue before we did it with uh, embryonic stem cell and IPS-derived der- cells. Um, but we found that uh, if we put the cells in only the forebrain, they would disperse throughout the entire nervous system, but it would only myelinate the forebrain. 
there's a lot of details there, but but, but uh, that, that's the bottom line. And then we would see myelination, but we wouldn't see increased survival. But then we realized that, uh, that what was happening was that this, when the cells were undergoing this long migration through the brain, they were losing oligodendrocyte fate components um, by virtue of having to transit from white matter to gray matter mm. in order to get to the ne- next white matter tracked over. And so that, that actually led to several years of work in the lab in terms of what the signals were that were involved in that in, in terms of why the cells would uh, start to bias towards astrocyte phenotype and lose oligodendrocyte uh, components. Anyway, we, 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 uh, then uh, uh, this is Martha Windham's work in the lab, developed a uh, strategy for multi-site injection so that all the major white matter tracts are injected up front. And uh, so the uh, uh, basically the hindbrain and the, the cerebellar outflow and, and then the commissures as well as the uh, uh, corpus callosum. Uh, so that um, that was enough, just five injections, it sounds worse than it is, just five injections. In fact, we've modeled this now in, in, uh, uh, in humans in terms of the geometry. We expect six injections will be enough in, in kids. And that was enough to infiltrate the entire nervous system and to have all the white matter tracts remyelinate. And so when that happened, the animals were rescued. Basically, uh, the, 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 neurologically, they improve, and then they improve enough that they stop seizing, and then they... And then uh, they, their strength comes back, and basically they are rescued. And so then they go ahead and have normal lifespans. We've taken them out to just a couple years with, with absolutely normal uh, normal um, lifespans and recovery of, of all neurologic function. So so that told us now that, that these cells were really capable of not just remyelinating the nervous system, but of rescuing the, the underlying disease state. And and you saw an increase in uh, of these cells integrating into the host when there was a lack of myelin as opposed to if you inject into just uh, immunocompromised mice, not without the shiverer, you see more integration when there's a lack of myelin. Is that correct? Well, not quite. So uh, we'll see the same degree of integration either way. Okay. What, what, what the, the difference is that in, if you put the cells into a normally myelinated brain, uh, they'll, they'll still disperse and expand, but they won't become oligodendrocytes. They'll only uh. differentiate as oligodendrocytes if they see a demyelinated area. That, that's one of the beauties of the, of the uh, te- uh, technique, at least as we uh, take it clinical, is that the cells will um, pervade the nervous system uh, and won't do anything in terms of terminal differentiation until the signals are there that will trigger differentiation. Mm. In the case of oligodendrocyte production, that means uh, in, uh, essentially encountering regions that are demyelinated or hypermyelinated. And so when the cells see basically naked axons, there may be more to it than that, but we're not entirely sure of all the signals involved. But but basically when they see areas of denuded axons, they uh, differentiate as oligodendrocytes and go ahead and myelinate. Really cool, really cool. So you yeah, must, so you must get. Sorry, a, I just yeah, want to. I just want to ask for for the people listening who who might be saying, that sounds amazing. You know, you have this animal that dies at twenty weeks, and uh, now you can get it to go out two years. Where are we? Right, this is what people want to know. Where are we in terms of patients, humans, with this technology, and where do you see some of the hurdles being? You know, short term or and or long term. Um, I know it's probably a very long discussion to have, but we can sum up kind of wh- where you what you're trying to do now to position yourself to to do this in in in, in people. Sure. So, so we're we're thinking about it both in terms of 
pediatric and adult disease targets. And they're very different in terms of how, how one approaches one or the other. For the pediatric disease targets, I actually think uh, for a lot of diseases, this may be uh, you know, frank rescue. We should be able to actually save some of these kids. Um, uh, the, the the nature of it in terms of taking it to the clinic was such that uh, that it was um, if you will a straighter shot in terms of um, going to some of the adult targets simply because the patient populations are larger and, and it's, it's much easier to recruit and so uh, the uh, the first effort that we've put uh, put forth is in uh, multiple sclerosis in progressive MS. And so the multiple sclerosis has a couple of phases. There's a relapsing remitting phase, uh, which is the first uh, usually several years, sometimes the first uh, 10 to 15 years in some cases of the disease, uh, where there's acute inflammation of the brain, which comes and goes and results in demyelination. So we worry about putting the cells in at that phase where there's acute inflammation. And so even if we're giving immunosuppressants to the patients, uh, we, we, we worry that uh, uh, the cells may not uh, engraft well in that kind of setting. But the second phase of the disease, which is by far the more disabling, is when patients transition from this relapsing remitting phase where they are having uh, uh, episodes of demyelination associated with neurologic deficit but then get better. But then as, they, as time goes on, they transition to this progressive phase where they don't get better. And so uh, because of the prior lesions, they then have permanent deficits that slowly over time get worse and worse. And so it's that slowly over time character that really distinguishes progressive multiple sclerosis from the earlier phase of relapsing remitting. So what's happening is that they already have now demyelinated areas that haven't remyelinated, and those denuded axons over time are, are dying from for, uh, lack of... Um, metabolic support from the oligodendrocyte primarily, but slowly but surely, uh, these patients are then losing their underlying axons and becoming uh, quite impaired. That, that's the phase at which multiple sclerosis patients will typically become wheelchair-bound or worse. And so uh, at the same time, the, most of those cases, uh, uh, the degree of inflammation has fallen considerably, and so they become very good targets for this type of remyelination therapy. And so uh, New York State has funded us for a anticipated clinical trial of uh, human glial progenitor cells in progressive uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, and, and that's something that uh, we've uh, been through a couple phases now with the uh, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. But basically, we're, we're in the phases of getting some of the necessary um, uh, safety toxicology data mm. that the FDA requires. In other words, uh, to, to be sure that the cells cannot um, uh, become cells that we don't want them to or that the cells can't become tumorigenic. These are very standard issues in the field. Um, and basically, once we have uh, that evidence, then we'll be able to, to go to patients uh, with this, at least with patients with progressive multiple sclerosis. What we're hoping, though, of course, is that this is a, essentially a proof of principle. Mm, the sure. cells that we're making for this purpose, we should be able to use for this very broad variety of diseases. And so it's, it's because of that that um, we're all, we already have uh, the effort uh, in the works to make the, these cells from embryonic stem cells and to then be able to use those embryonic stem cell-derived oligodendrocyte progenitor cells or glial progenitor cells uh, for treating uh, this and other diseases as well. Now, of course, we already know, as we just discussed, how to make the cells, uh, but uh, when you're going to deliver the cells to people as, as a clinical therapeutic, there's an additional level of scrutiny involved in terms of uh, uh, making sure that the cells 
don't have uh, any uh, um, chromosomal abnormalities and, and don't have any uh, underlying in, uh, insertion of infectious agents uh, or, or, or any um, uh, previous insertion of uh, foreign uh, uh, viral genes in, in, into the uh, cells to be transplanted. And, and all of that is uh, called the, the GMP process of making sure that cells that are um, injected into people have undergone what's called by the FDA, the good manufacturing practice, or that they are prepared under good manufacturing practice or GMP guidelines. And so we've already made uh, the, the uh, GMP-compliant um, oligodendrocyte progenitor cells from fetal tissue, uh, but now we're doing that with the uh, human embryonic stem cells as well. And then the idea will be at, uh, at some point, um, uh, perhaps very soon, to, to transition uh, our efforts entirely from fetal tissue to um, fetal tissue-derived cells to um, the embryonic stem cell-derived cells. And, uh, in fact, uh, we have a request um, out, out there now to, to actually make that transition uh, really immediately, or I should say imminently. But, but um, the hope is that as time goes on that um, we'll be able to have essentially a replenishable source, constantly renewable source of progenitor cells that, that are uh, appropriate for human transplant that, that are uh, embryonic stem cell derived. Wow. So that's great. I mean, uh, hopefully that'll get into the clinic sooner than later. And uh, just to wrap it up, because we're past the half hour I know. Time I feel point. like I have so many more questions, too, but <laughs> yeah. we, we run out of time. It's like when so we, we interviewed Rusty, to... we could have kept going. Rusty Gage, we could have kept uh, going for like I know, an hour. I know. So. I think this is a problem when we have neuroscientists and neurologists <laughs> on. Yosef and I get really, uh, it's like, you know, kids in a candy store. We just want to keep, keep going. So we're going to, for this for the continuity of the podcast, let's, uh, let's, let's end it on that note with high hopes that we have something in the future for people with these these debilitating disorders uh and take this a little to the uh um, humor side of the of the podcast which people love to hear funny stories from scientists i think we think that we don't have a comedic side i think we feel like we're robotic and uh so do you so we can ask you steve is there anything from your scientific world and career and life that 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 you want to share that you find to be humorous and that our audience would, would laugh at well, there's always something funny going on, usually, usually inadvertent and uh, sometimes only funny in retrospect. Um, you know, I mentioned before that I started out in, uh, in birdsong, and so, so one of the challenges in my own uh, career has always been combining the, the basic science with the clinical, and literally that involves going back and forth on a daily basis, uh, still in my, in my case, for, between the, the clinic and, and the lab. And, but back when I was training... Well, it was actually just, just after I finished training. I was junior attending. I was trying to set up uh, my lab. And uh, I was still taking care of my own canaries and then running off and actually taking care of the intensive care unit at Cornell. And, um, uh, you know, one, one day I was in the uh, uh, canary unit. I just thought of this before when you just mentioned the birds. Um, and, you know, I was cleaning bird cages. Uh, but, but I, of course, I had my—I uh, had just come from the ICU, and I had my you know, coat and stethoscope, everything else on. I was, I was ready to roll as far as the clinic was concerned. I just ran back to, to take care of the birds. And then I got an emergency call from the ICU, and it was uh, and I, and I will never forget it. It was a patient that um, uh, had a, uh, a hyperglycemic response to, to insulin. 
you know, who knows whether she got too much insulin or or, or, or was uh, an unexpected response. But in any event, uh, I get a call that, that basically somebody's glucose is zero, and uh, I, I went running out of the uh, out of the canary room back into the intensive care unit, which was this was at Cornell. It was actually a very nice way to be able to combine basic science and clinical career because it was literally 50 feet down the hall through two doors and I was in the ICU. Wow. And uh, I went running in and uh, you know, it was like something out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, I had to take a big 50 mil uh, uh, ampule of uh, dextrose and, and uh, basically stabbed the patient. Wow. Uh, in the, uh, it was a femoral pulp, vein. Yeah, so. Pulp Fiction, that's what I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this wasn't in the heart. This was how you get really quick sure, sure, sure. If it's emergent, you go into the femoral vein. And if you don't have time to actually insert a uh, an intravenous line, you just can always. Uh, if you ever need to get something into somebody really quickly, there's nothing like the femoral vein. <laughs> and uh, you know, g- gave the person a quick shot. Meantime, the, you know, the nurses and a couple of residents are, are looking at me, and and then are looking around in the air. And then I realized that a couple of the birds that, that had left the room and basically followed me. <laughs> you know, I had a couple of canaries flying around the intensive care unit. And I was covered with feathers, and, and uh, uh, you know, then had to explain myself how how in the world uh, you know it was, it was coming in with with these canaries, um, and and then of course you know we had this, this scene of people trying to catch canaries in uh, in the ICU. Oh, and in the meantime, the, you know, the patient then uh, again like out of the the uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, she didn't immediately sit up, but about uh, 30 seconds into this, she she sits up and uh, you know looks very confused. But so just just the whole context of having canaries flying around in ICU that we're trying to catch, and this patient who uh, uh, you know was minutes from death is now sitting up, looking around very confused. It was uh, there was a there was a surreal aspect to the whole thing. Yeah. So uh, combining the the clinical and the basic science career always has its challenges. That was one of the more unusual ones. That's great yeah. that they followed yeah. you like that. Oh, I didn't. I know they, they filed did him right in like like he was like they're like like a dog and its owner you know like where is he going I gotta go find. and the best thing is the patient who has no idea what the hell is going on and just popped up and seeing I probably think that I was either delirious or dead if I saw canaries flying over my my hospital bed or something like that yeah, uh, yeah. well thank yeah. you thank you for thank you for taking the time and telling us about your work and for uh, giving us that funny story and for everybody out there um, again he's Dr. Steve Goldman you can you can find his work. Uh, it's easily accessible uh, online, and if uh, there are more questions about his work, you can email the podcast, and we can help do our best to either try to answer them or direct them on to Steve. And so, again, thank you for taking the time, and, and, and look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Thank you. Sure thing. Thanks very much. Take care. Take care. All right. One of our heroes, Steve Goldman. Great interview. Yeah, great interview, great stuff. Always is. Uh, it's very cool stuff. You guys should go check out some of the pictures and the videos from his work. It's really, really awesome. Um, all right, so let's get into the rant now. Let's complain about something. And Yost, um, Yost gave me a list of topics that I put on Periscope. You can watch me reacting to them. It's really funny. Uh, but we picked this one. Go ahead, Yost. Uh, uh, well, the other day somebody said to me, hey, you know, you look tired. I'm like, uh, and I wasn't particularly tired. I just, I don't know. I, 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 I just hate it when people say you look tired. It's just, first of all, it's not a good look. Dude, <laughs> it's, it's not, no, it's not. It's the worst thing. You know what? You know what this recently just happened to me? I was doing a the news, the local news came to do a, a piece on the lab for the BPA story, and uh, 
right as I'm about I'm in front of the camera, and she goes to me, you're all right. You look tired. And I'm like, are you serious? You're telling me that right now, right before you turning this camera on? It's going to be going all over this place? Yeah. Like, why would you ever say that to me? She's like, no, no, no. But I don't mean it like you look bad. I'm like, well, it's not good. Yeah. Right? It's not a good look. It's, it's not, not a good look. And I, I and guys, listen, don't ever tell a woman that she looks tired. Yeah. I'm never, 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 never do that. Even if she looks exhausted. In yeah. no way is this helping you. I promise. You know, yeah. like it's, it's not going to – unless you are – married to that woman with children and you're going to let her sleep for the next three hours and you're going to follow that up by saying you know honey you look tired why don't you go take a nap for three hours i'll take care of the kids unless that's the conversation there's no way you're getting out of that with anything positive i mean there's some people who naturally look tired like ben carson to me the presidential candidate (laughs) he always looks sleepy to me like he needs a nap or something i I don't i mean he's also kind of doesn't have that much personality going on according to donald trump he seems a little bit you know doesn't have the motivational going on but i i feel bad for people who just sort of naturally look tired and you know i'm i'm half middle eastern i, I kind of had the eyeshadow the natural eyeshadow so maybe i naturally look tired i don't know but it, it's not a good look let's just, dude let's just have you there. seen chris berman lately and the bags under his eyes that poor man looks like like he's got like something folded three times <laughs> under the man's eyes. That guy, that's a problem. I think. I don't. I don't think that's being tired. Yeah, but I, I agree, man. It's never a good look to tell someone they look tired. Yeah, and he, now all these things are starting to come out. Like there's this new uh, term, resting uh, bee face. I don't want to say the the bad word on air, but uh, you know, people have a naturally uh upset looking face i feel bad for them too i mean what do you say to that it's it's, and they constantly get are you okay is something wrong face like they used to call a stink face yeah and they they're always getting are you okay is something wrong and i feel bad for those people too i mean yeah me too you know what And, and you know what those people do over time they get so frustrated with them people constantly asking them what's wrong that they become agitated yeah they're it's, like, there's nothing wrong with me. You know? It's a like, self-fulfilling stop. prophecy, yeah. So I, I don't know how to address this. If somebody looks tired, maybe you could skirt around it and say, hey, I, I'm going to make some coffee. Would you like some? Or, that's, a good I, idea. You know, that's a good way. That's, maybe a, that's the good way to do it. Get around don't, it. <laughs> not, not, a, not a good look out there, fellas. Yeah, Definitely yeah. not for the fellas. Yeah. For no one. No one should tell anyone they look tired. Just yeah. offer them a cup of coffee. Yeah, there you go. Oh, uh, man. All right, Yos. 56 right. down, man. I'll see you on the flip side. Everybody have a good rest of your week. We'll catch you at 57, right? Yep, yep. I'll see you All at right, the man. conference next week. Yes, sir. Nice stuff. See you soon. Bye. And as always, this episode was sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. Go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner to find out more information.